Welcome to the Lila Joe Show. I'm Lila. I'm a competitive ice dancer and a psychology student. I'm also really curious about people and the fascinating stories that we all have to tell. Thank you so much for being here. And today, please welcome my guest to share their story. Today's storyteller is your new gratefulness guru, Christy Nelson. Christy is the executive director of a network for grateful living, founded by the infamous brother David Steindl Rost. Christy is also the author of Wake Up Grateful, a transformative practice of taking nothing for granted. After being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at age 32, Christy had to look mortality in the face and was reborn to the beauty and poignancy of life. Through her experience, Christy has developed tools to hone her deep appreciation for this miraculous life in all of its simplicity and complexity. She has so many gems of wisdom to share, and in this conversation, you will learn how you can be grateful, unconditionally. Christy has a generosity of spirit like none other, and such a powerful message to share with you all. So today, please welcome to the Lila Joe Show, Christy Nelson. Christy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I'm so beyond excited for this conversation, and I already feel like we're long-lost soul sisters. I don't know if you agree. I'm going to come up, but I have to meet you now. <laughs> I know. We'll do, we'll do a skating lesson, as promised. So my interviews are structured like workouts, as I'm an athlete. So we'll start off with a warm-up to get the blood pumping, move on into a longer period of high-intensity questions, and wrap it up with a cool down. How does that sound? I love it. As long as we take a breath at the end and do a little yoga breathing to like really finalize. You're going to lead that at the end. We'll do a little yoga moment. Okay, wonderful. So our warm-up. Palm trees or pine trees? Palm trees right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Coffee or tea? Tea. What movie or TV show is top of your list right now? We just watched Summer of Soul. We watched uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. We watched Rocket Man. So I'm kind of on a music movie binge with all these amazing musicians. Great answer. And learning about their histories. So that's a great answer. Oh, good. Thanks. When do you laugh the hardest? When my partner tells jokes. Who is your favorite poet right now? Danusha Lamorous. Okay, I'm going to do a Google after this. Yeah, you are. She's a beautiful poet, and she wrote a poem that you could look up called Small Kindnesses. It's gorgeous. It sounds beautiful. What was your first thought when you woke up this morning? I get to be on the Lila Fear Show. Oh, yay! <laughs> and what daily routine could you not live without? Waking up with my morning tea and my botanical herbal concoction that I drink every single day, no matter where I am, I take it with me. And it's super immune, awesome, cortisol balancing, crazy stuff that I mix with hot water and a half a lemon. And it's the first thing that goes in my body every morning. And so I have that as a ritual. And then I make my cup of tea and I sit and it's always super quiet because I get up around 4.30 or 5 every day. And so nobody else in the house is awake, obviously. <laughs> so it's just my favorite time of day. And when the sun rises, and I love being awake when the sun rises and having quiet time. Yeah, I love that that time when no one else is awake. And it's mm. your day for the taking, right? Your day for the taking. It's so gorgeous. And set the, set the intention and the tone for the day to start off in kind of a quiet, contemplative place and, and think about the day ahead and how I want to spend it. Exactly. So our warm-up is complete. How are you feeling? I'm really excited. I'm ready for whatever is next. All right. So I always start off with my guest's childhood because I love to understand why you are the way that you are and that foundation that you have. So you dedicate your book, Wake Up Grateful, to your parents for giving you the gift of life and then each in their own way, showing you how to love it fiercely and with joy. How did your mom and dad set this example for you? Wow. You promised you would ask me questions nobody else asked me. And that is such a great question. I'm goosebumps head to toe, just to say. My mom died while I was writing the book. 
So she was so committed to life at 24, she had cancer that she survived and she had three little kids and it was such a hard thing. She'd had me when she was 19. So she was 24, three of us really little. And her mother had died when she was 11 of cancer. So she wanted to live so badly, so fiercely. And she, she's the fierce. My mother was fierce in her attachment to life and her love for us kids. So that fierceness has been a beautiful richness that I've felt like in my whole being ever since uh, being born to this mother and to know what it is to be really in some ways attached to life for better or worse. Right. And my father is, I tell him all the time, he taught me everything about joy. My father is such a joyful, loving, pretty fearless, trusting, poetic, natural worldy kind of guy. He's a sailor and he recites poetry and he's still alive. He's not doing super great um, physically, but he's so spiritually grateful. And so those two, that combination, each in their own way, just taught me so much. And they didn't get along, but I, I decided to marry them inside of me. How did you do that? Such a radical thing for anybody who's come from a divorced family. I took the best of who they each were and believe that it's manifested in me and decided that if I could couple their qualities inside of me copacetically, collaboratively, peacefully, and have it be generative, then I could heal their stuff that wasn't healed between them. And then I could carry it on. And I really, I was in my 20s and I did a ritual in the woods. It involved dancing. It involved crying. (laughs) And I decided to marry my parents inside of me. And so that's been a powerful journey. And so I dedicate the book to them and I dedicate, you know, they dedicated their life to me and my siblings. So I dedicate my life to them. Well, now it's my turn to have goosebumps. That is absolutely beautiful. And and the word I was going to say was powerful. And that's exactly what you just said. Now, as you know, I, I'm a bit of a detective and found out that you lived in Germany growing up. So what is your fondest memory from this time in your childhood? I lived in the Black Forest with my parents. My father took a teaching job and uh, we were there off and on a few different times, but one time for a full year. And I went to a very small German speaking school in Horben. And I went into sixth grade and I, there was no English and nobody spoke much English in this little town where we lived. And so it was full throttle immersion. And I would say that in sixth grade, it's such a formative time. Angelus Arian says that in our midlife, part of what we're trying to do is to reclaim the parts of ourselves that were most alive between the ages of seven and 12. And I believe that. I believe that we're so who we are between seven and 12. So I was 12 when I was in Germany going to school for this year. And I missed out on the U.S., like what happens for a lot of girls and guys who are just entering adolescence. And this was much more kind of down home, rural. It was farms. But I learned we had a required class, crochet. I learned I was part of the chess club. So I did all these really nerdy things that that I would never that I came back and I realized I was like a total nerd because my friends were in eighth grade and I was going to seventh grade and I missed out on all of the crazy stuff they were doing. I, you know, learned a lot about farming. I learned I had to crochet a laundry bag. That was a really big thing. <laughs> and I learned to play chess, which was very strategic and a very cool thing to figure out how to do as a girl in sixth grade and soccer too. So 
It was a very formative, amazing experience. And it was the last year that my parents were really together. So it was, I look back on that and it was a family time. And for all of its better and worseness, it was a really powerful, formative time for me. And you really spent a lot of time in nature as a child and had such a joy for life. So if you could take a photo of a nature scene that best encompasses your childhood, what would it look like? I grew up near a pond where you could jump off this huge rock. You know, it was like forbidden, forbidden, but I just loved, we would go up to the top of this rock and jump into the pond. And it was, to get there, we had to hike through the woods And uh, there was a stream leading into it that we would swim into sometimes. So it was very idyllic in this way. And um, I spent a lot of time in the woods. And that is what I realized between 7 and 12 was kind of what I want to reclaim is that part of me that loved being, I loved the woods and I felt safe in the woods alone. And it was a place where I could find sanctuary from people, which, you know, I'm a big extrovert, but for me, being in the natural world is so deeply nourishing and restorative for me. Mm, I so agree. And it's funny you mentioned this age bracket between seven and 12, because in your book, you have a practice, remember your joyful self. When you think back to an activity where you could just get lost in it for hours and hours during those ages. So I encourage the listeners to try this out and to really integrate that into your life now because why not? Why not stay young at heart and reconnect to that joyful self? You are so good. Thank you for mentioning that. No, you have so many wonderful tools in your book and I'm just pouring over the pages every day and so excited to try everything out in my life and I can't recommend it enough, and I'll keep saying that throughout this interview, I'm sure. Now, ages 20 to 30, it's prime time and planning time. So what were your ambitions and what plan did you have in mind for your life at this age? I was really passionate about conservation, so environmental issues, I kind of did something rad, which is that I didn't go to college right after high school. I took four years off. So I didn't start my undergraduate degree till I was 22. And it was one of the best decisions I made. So I spent a lot of time, you know, getting, I got into natural foods. I was into cooking I'm baking and I really enjoyed working in restaurants and I traveled a lot. And, uh, and so I figured out that I wanted to get my degree in women's studies and health education because I became passionate about eating disorders and was really concerned about that. And I myself had struggled with body image and all that kind of stuff. So I did my degree program. And at the same time, I was very kind of politicized when I was at college. I was at UMass Amherst and I was working in environmental groups and food safety issues and and things like that. So 20s to 30s, I got really settled into the nonprofit world and social cause world and realized that I, I started raising money for this peace organization, this incredible peace organization. And I found out I was actually really good at it, which was so embarrassing and awful and something you would never want to admit to people. So, um, and during that time, I realized, oh, this is a career path. I can support all these organizations and advance these values I care about so deeply by raising money for them. And so I haven't looked back since I was 25. I've been employed in the nonprofit sector exclusively, and I'm 61. I'm almost 62. So that's a long time. Wow. And this prime time kind of ground to a halt at 32 years old when you found yourself faced with mortality and you spent 10 weeks in a hospital, isolated, undiagnosed, hooked up to IV drips. And during this painful time of so many questions and no answers, how did you come to meet and form a relationship with uncertainty? Mm. Goosebumps. Um, I had no choice. I had no choice. And so I would have never chosen it. And isn't that what's so interesting is that life gave me the opportunity to befriend not knowing. And I think when we're especially young, there's such an attachment to knowing and our culture is pretty obsessed with 
we have to know that not knowing is bad. A great quote that I love that is one of my favorites is the greatest enemy of learning is knowing. That's John Maxwell. So one of these amazing experiences for me of learning how much I didn't know and how little there was to know and how even in the medical system, when there's this whole belief that, okay, after this next test, we're going to know this next test is going to reveal the diagnosis, this next diagnostic procedure, this next invasive thing, the surgery, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And it kept not happening. And so I, in that space, it was a, it was for me, I would call it kind of a spiritual awakening. I, I would call that a time in my life where I got stopped in my tracks, made to be quiet. You know, now I have this morning ritual of being quiet, but that was weeks and weeks and weeks on end and not being able to be outside in the summertime for an entire summer and being really ill and not feeling well and having to reckon with and reconcile my mortality, as you say, and, and also what if this is all there is, how am I going to live? How am I going to choose to live every day if this might be my last day and what what can I know and what can't I know? What do I get to know? What can I really truly be sure of in my life? And I realized what was in my control and what wasn't and where to put my attention in order to have peace of mind. Hmm. Wow. That's at, at such a young age to be able to ask yourself those questions and also surrender to the unknown I guess becoming a student to whatever scenario is is the key. Exactly, and so beautifully put, by the way. Thank, oh, thank you. you. And um, with such a drastically altered perspective because of this diagnosis of stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, what is something that you had previously thought was so important that now seemed so trivial? Let me take just a minute because I want to honor your question. I really let go a lot of caring so much about what people thought about me. I came home to myself in a different way and, and I accepted who I was in a different way and I was more impervious. I did not uh, respond all the time. I didn't need as much reinforcement externally because there was something core that got very strengthened in the experience. And so I could let other people's ideas about what I should be doing. I had to find that, you know, what that call kind of that inner intuition, that sense of this is who I am. This is who I'm not. And I'm going to trust my gut. I'm going to trust who I am. I have to learn to listen inside or else I'm doomed. <laughs> like if I, tr if I give my fate away to all the different people's opinions that were surrounding me about what I should do and who I should be and the choices I should make, I would have been absolutely done in by that. So I had to strengthen that core resolve and that core sense of self-knowing and carry that out into the world. And it's hard. It's still hard. You know, those are really hard things to do, but it did strengthen that sense of myself. Wow. Yeah. I mean, people's perspectives and opinions and caring what people think, it's so prevalent and something I struggle with. And I think everyone listening struggles with and I love just strengthening that inner resolve, that intuition. It took you going through something that was so devastating to connect to that. And I just wonder if you could give advice of, to my listeners of how we could do that in our lives now, maybe in a daily practice, just to connect to that intuition. Mm. I have a practice that I love that a friend taught me that is so cool. And then I since found out that Elizabeth Gilbert does it. Love her. Which is kind of cool because I love her. <laughs> yeah. Right. I love her too. So it's about writing a letter to yourself from your highest self. So kind of from, from love. So, and she talks, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about it as love. I talk about it as kind of the universe, the wisest part of the universe. And so I 
would do these little letters and address myself in this really compassionate way that holds paradox. So this is so cool, I think, which is dear, courageous and terrified one. So that would be one dear, insecure, extraordinary woman. Um, but I think there's something about wisdom. Wisdom is calling. And, and I love that idea. And love is calling. And how do we speak to ourselves from this place? And it helps to, because all you're doing is writing what you know to be true, but you're channeling it through this beautiful, wise elder voice. And we all need that. So I like to write to myself from that place that reinforces, that holds paradox, that holds all the contradictions, that's big enough to hold all the things that are true at once and find them beautiful and find them normal and find them human and find them lovable. Like that's the most important thing. So it's a great writing practice. Just try it, you know, and, and call yourself something that, that is in and of itself an attempt at reconciling those parts of yourself. And so I like to use those words that seem like they kind of don't quite go together. But it's a beautiful mixture. It is. It's humanity. It's just so beautiful. In your book, you wrote, putting out my welcome mat to vulnerability became central to my healing. How did you begin to unroll this welcome mat? And what was the first meeting like? Huh. It's always scary because I'd always had a welcome mat that was big for everything I wanted. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's like, Oh, okay. Hey, come on in, you know? And then I don't know if you know the, the guest house, the poem by Rumi. It's so beautiful. No, I don't think so. Oh gosh. I'm just going to keep dropping all these great little tidbits here, but go for it. There's a poem by Rumi called the guest house. It's gorgeous. And these poems that I'm mentioning, Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris, they're all on our website at gratefulness.org and they're free and they're available and they're so beautiful. But Rumi's poem, The Guest House, is about welcome all of the visitors who come, welcome shame, welcome malice, welcome contentment, welcome fear, welcome, you know, all of the things that come, sorrow, and give them all your welcome mat and, and embrace them all. And so I think the biggest thing for me was fear. The biggest thing for me was embracing fear. And, um, I love that that's your last name. It's not, irrele <laughs> not irrelevant Unintended. here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Embracing fear. Um, but there is something so beautiful and there's a quote by Mark Nepo, which says our fears just want to be held. And I had spent so long in my life pushing fear away and despising fear and thinking fear was weakness and thinking fear was bad and shameful and not wanting to admit all the places I was scared. And so there was something so powerful about rolling out that welcome mat for fear. Like people would say, don't be scared of dying. If you're scared of dying, you're going to die. Talk about getting set up then to get scared of fear, right? You're more afraid of fear than ever because it's like, oh my God, now if I indulge my fear, if I get sad and scared, I'm gonna, it's gonna kill me <laughs> because I have to keep my attitude really positive all the time. Instead, to realize that I could befriend fear, I could hold fear close and fear had so much to teach me and so many ways to guide me if I could listen to it. And then it would move in and out really fast in my life. Whereas the more I resisted it, the longer it stayed and the more power it had over me. So there's something so beautiful about really making space for fear and embracing it and having compassion around it. And like when you say kind of come here, let me hold you. All of a sudden it just, it just dissipates in the acceptance. It has so little power. So that's the, the welcome mat for vulnerability. I love that. All, all of those emotions that seem so dark and shameful they're just visitors right they can come in they can leave again they all do and so do the positive ones as well which we don't like to think about as much but everything is transient it's true and i think this leads us so well into a caption or catchphrase that you have which is gratefulness so how can we be what does it mean to have gratefulness for the gratefulness of life <laughs> The gratefulness of life 
is that welcome mat for everything. It means that there is sorrow right alongside beauty. There is pain and ecstasy so closely akin to each other. And and that's this word that I use, poignancy. Poignancy is the holding of those things at the same time, the love for life, the passion for life, and the awareness that it's short and that it's precious and fleeting and so, and all of our experiences are, so how do we embrace that great fullness of life and be grateful for it? I think is the, it's the great task of life. It's what we're here for. And it's, there's no perfection, which is what I love. I love a practice where you don't have to get a 10, where you don't have to be perfect. And the idea is that doing it and showing up to life in all of the imperfect ways is the perfect path to show up fully, fully for life, no matter what, there's no more perfect way to show up. And that means really embracing and sharing more of all the things that are imperfect. And that just gives such permission. I remember I studied with John Kabat-Zinn, who teaches mindfulness, and he and I have been friends for a long, long time. And I worked with him, and he was my teacher, my spiritual teacher. For He would hate to be called a spiritual teacher. He is. He is. He's an extraordinary man. So he, um, I met him in 1992, 1993. And um, and he, one of the things he said that was so beautiful and compassionate, that word just comes again, is that self-compassion is, it's not about being mindful in this perfect way. It's that like one more moment each day held mindfully is a success. One moment. It's not about like, I have to sit for 45 minutes and meditate and not have a thought, which is what I used to set myself up for, right? So it's like, how can you be mindful just one more moment in a day? And that leaves a lot of life. Like there's a lot of moments in a lifetime. So it's like, if one moment more a day is your path, it's really easy to do that for a long time and not worry about perfecting it because it's very compassionate. And it grounds you in the present moment because you're just taking baby steps where you are. Exactly, Lila. Exactly. And so that is so that's the self-compassionate way to to go through all of this is I think this path of embracing the great fullness of life is can I make a little bit more space today to accept where I really am, who I really am, what's really true in the world. And there's this line that I've used that people find sometimes challenging, but it's um, accepting what is doesn't mean that everything is acceptable that happens in the world. But accepting what is, is the place to start to transform what actually isn't acceptable. And that there's something about really fully embracing what is that gives us spaciousness to actually allow transformation to take place rather than resisting what is, because what is, is. So if we can start from acceptance, we're free to be able to work with reality in a really different, more fully engaged way. I think we're going to have so many deep quotes from this conversation. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I'm loving it. And Thank so you. we have this human tendency to categorize things into good and bad just because we want to make sense of the world. We cling to the idea of happiness and gratitude, which is an empty pursuit. So could you please tell us why instead we should focus on gratefulness and joy and how are they different? Big question, deep question. Let's go. So happiness is, um, you know, people would ask me sometimes, are you happy? And I just thought, oh my God, the pressure is so on. This is so hard. Like I'm not happy all the time. I'm really not. Like happiness is so elusive. It's, it's ephemeral. It's slippery. It's something that we've been sold a bill of goods about. It, you know, we have all the images of what happiness looks like. I mean, we are marketed those ad infinitum. They're everywhere. This is what happiness looks like. This is what happiness should feel like. And and the truth is, 
Happiness tends to be tied to external conditions and it's highly conditional. And that's how we've learned about it. And so gratitude, I consider to be very similar. Gratitude is tied to conditions. I'm grateful when I get what I want. And um, I have gratitude when everything goes my way and when all the lights are green and, you know, yeah, good. and um, and then I'm grumpy when I get a red light. So it's like, OK, how do we reconcile that? Well, gratefulness, I say, is really an inner orientation to life. Gratefulness is something that we can develop internally as a way of being. So it's ours. It's something that we cultivate. It's something that we can bring to life through ourselves rather than waiting for something to happen. And what that means is that being awake to the preciousness of life, being awake to how extraordinary life is, and that is just an absolute radical miracle to be alive in any single moment, is sufficient for gratefulness. So therefore, as long as you're breathing, you basically can have gratefulness as an orientation to life. You can come back to it for every moment. You can be grateful. Brother David, who's, you know, my spiritual teacher in many ways and the founder of our organization, he says, you can't be grateful for everything, but you can be grateful in every moment. So then that gives us permission to orient that way. Brother David says, joy is the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. Joy is an inside job. Joy is something that's a deep, unconditional state of being that we can cultivate as well. And it's tied to life itself and the gift of life. And joy is something that we can bring to life inside ourselves. Gratefulness is the same. So I say gratefulness is the gratitude that doesn't depend on what happens. The more we can find joy and gratefulness and orient ourselves that way, the more we can find those states of being that are not conditional on what happens, the more we can sustain and orient to that which serves our quality of life, that which serves well-being, it serves resilience, it serves love, it, it serves everything. The more we can find those places inside ourselves because they're sustainable, right? The others aren't sustainable. I can't sustain happiness. And I can't sustain gratitude as I've learned it. But gratefulness is my wellspring. It exists within me. And joy is the same. Therefore, I can bring them to life in the ways that I want, in the ways that I'm called to bring those to life. And so that's what I would call the distinctions between those things. And it's a great question. Well, thank you for that explanation, just because I think it's a very important distinction and it really sets the tone for the rest of our conversation and why gratefulness is the new gratitude or the new and improved (laughs) sustainable gratitude. Now, upon entering treatment, a nurse told you that your new peer group would be people in their 80s because of your health. And we all know about peer pressure but maybe it was a good thing in this instance. So how did your new peer group pressure you for good? You are so good. Your questions, I'm sorry. I hope you'll leave this in the interview because it's so much fun to be interviewed by you. Anybody who gets interviewed by you is so lucky. Okay, so anyway, there we go. Thank you. So yes, and that was so radical to me. I'm 33 years old and I'm being told that my peer group is in their 70s and 80s. I thought, oh, this is just the worst thing ever. And what I realized it, it was one of the greatest freedoms ever. You know, that place where I said, what was the bit, one of the big lessons was caring less what other people thought about me. That's really hard to navigate in a young life. Young lives, I think we're very bound to our concern about perception our concerns about other people's um, ways of seeing us and their opinions about us. I could see in people who are in their 70s something I longed for, which was that sense of kind of a peaceful way of being with themselves, a kind of a surrender to who they really were, a knowing of who they really were. And so that was available to me in this way. And the reason why is because I had to embrace mortality. I had to embrace the idea that I had no idea how long I was going to live. 
that nothing was promised me, that my body was fallible, that every day that I woke up was a gift. And in that peer pressure, (laughs) in that peer group, it was much easier for me to let go of the things that didn't matter. It kind of sorted, it was like a big colander that sorted out what didn't make the cut, you know, and some ways. So all the stuff that wasn't that important fell through the holes and what I was left with were the meaningful nuggets. And it's, it's a practice and it's constantly returning to trying to remember that, but I felt really lucky. And I suppose this peer group as well, they can't plan on the future too, right? Because of age and, and getting closer to mortality and it's difficult to have that perspective as a 22-year-old, for example. And you wrote, to invest in the future while embracing the vast unknown is to hold a powerful paradox in our hands. So there's a lot of paradoxes in life, but for those of us who are at that younger age where there feels like there's a need to plan and a habit of planning, how can we invest in the future and kind of plan what we want for our lives while also building tolerance for uncertainty? Such a good question. So if someone told you that you only had a year to live, how would you live that year? And for me, I think one of the things that's true is we have to plan. We have to imagine the two things at once. How do you find that middle place which says, I'm going to invest in my dreams without being attached to the exact form that they take or the exact time trajectory in which they unfold? So that's the vigilance, which is killer, right? So I think that part of it is, and I know vigilance well, but part of it is that's why I kind of say like, what? would you do with an opportunity? What would you do if everything is kind of a second chance at life? If every day is a miracle? It's an interesting question because that miracle presupposes some period of time in which to live out the miracle, but it doesn't take it for granted. It doesn't assume Because in that place of assumption is a kind of um, lethargy as well. Like we're energized by the idea of life being precious and fleeting. How do you hold that? Like life is so extraordinary and so miraculous. And yet it's not promised to any of us. That's the big wild enchilada of life is that that dash on the tombstone, no one has any idea how long it's going to live. You're born, you get the dash, and then that date is just the big question mark of life. And what are you going to do about that? How do I want to be? Who do I want to be? What choices do I want to make? How do I want to spend my time? Who is important to me? Who isn't important to me? What is important to me? And trusting that we have just the right amount of time to do what we need to do is a powerful concept because it means that you've got enough, but not too much, right? So there's this interesting in-between world between there's not enough time and, oh, I've got plenty of time to do all those things that matter to me. What's the energizing, enlivening place where just enough time lives And that it activates you. It activates your energy towards your dreams. It activates you to love who you love and do what you want to do. We want that way of being in life so fully. And I think that means to live gratefully. I think living gratefully puts us in touch with that exact, really powerful way of experiencing our lives and time is to live really gratefully and to take nothing for granted. Yeah. Which is your book is the Bible for this, by the way, <laughs> everyone listening. Thank I, you. I, it's funny when you, when you talk about that, it's interesting because you said there's the dash on the tombstone and then the question mark and everything you said afterwards, it was 
posing questions to oneself. And it's that reflection. Okay, I'm living this day. I'm so grateful for this. But let me consider my intentions behind my relationships, my actions, what I'm saying to myself. And all of these things, it's like that deeper layer that needs to be tapped into on a daily basis to optimize that day. Totally. Are you living on purpose? Are you living with intention? And to me, living gratefully wakes all those things up. When you wake up and you say, this is a day that's a miracle and wasn't promised to me, and what am I going to make of it? And every day I have ahead of me, I'm going to treat the same way. Then all these things get activated and opened up that I think are really exciting to watch unfold because you're not taking anything for granted. So you experienced gratefulness on steroids and you call this being blissed out because everything was amazing as a cancer survivor, right? So could you just explain to my listeners, what did the world look like through your blissed out binoculars? (laughs) I just was amazed to be able to walk because I hadn't, I hadn't been able to walk. So being able to do something like, oh my God, look at me, I'm going downstairs. Oh my God, look at me, I'm going upstairs. Oh my God, look at me, I'm pouring a cup of tea. Oh my God, listen to that bird. I mean, I it was, you know, just people's voices, touch, uh, my friends, my family, the natural world. It was wild. It was so acute, my sense of life. There was no dullness. It was vivid. I wasn't so busy planning for a future. And I wasn't so busy regretting the past. I was really, really where I was and just going, oh my gosh, this is mind blowing. And I was in a very raw, extraordinary state that I think when you wake up that way, it is incredibly life enhancing. It's extraordinary. It's not meant to be 100% of the time. I don't think, you know, life is much different than that. And we have comings and goings of it. But it's nice to have those reference points that we can return to and remind ourselves of sometimes and to know the pathways and the practices that help us reconnect to some of that, that real love for life and presence and availability. Yes. And and that's the key. You say gratefulness is it's like a muscle, so you can strengthen it, but you can't work out all day every day and that's okay and and being gentle with that fact of okay i'm disconnected a little bit i'm taking something for granted so let's get back to that baseline and your book is such a wonderful guide containing so many tools to help us tap into that that gratefulness when we are out of the zone and it's from your own experience and from people who have taught you about gratefulness so i'm going to say a name and i want you to tell me what you feel Brother David Steindl-Rost. Awesome love and respect. So let's say you're out on a walk with Brother David and you bump into a friend of yours. How would you introduce him to a stranger? One of the most childlike, wisest people I've ever known. And I think childlikeness and wisdom are really closely connected. So when I talk about that kind of bliss feeling, there is something like childlike wonder in that. And yet also the wisdom as if everything's for the last time. And that's from a good day and a grateful day is live every live every day as if it's your first or your last. And so he is an embodiment of that, of he's 95 years old now He's lived a lot of his life in a monastery. He's beautiful. um, And he's just an incredibly powerful teacher. And this deep wisdom combined with the childlike playfulness is an amazing combination that I think it gives me something to point towards in my life. That embodiment is really exquisite to be around. And what was your first impression upon meeting Brother David? And what surprised you as you got to know him more? He is so reverent about his connections. There's so many people who feel like they're his best friend. I mean, it's incredible. 
people people say to me, people say he writes me a birthday message every year on my birthday. It's incredible. And I think, wow, so many people have said that to me. Like, this is incredible. I can hardly keep up with my own social life. I don't even know how he does it. But he he really has this sense of relationality and also this very deep inner life and this spiritual life and this introversion kind of. So I think that was surprising to me. And he was, he struck me immediately because he has a twinkle in his eye that is unbelievable. This life force that is so beautiful to behold. And we should all wish for of half of that that he has. Honestly, it's aspire to that. He sounds radiant. He is radiant. He's pale, but he's radiant. <laughs> You're listening to The Lila Joe Show. So you have become pen pals over the years, exchanging many handwritten letters. What is a pearl of wisdom that you really hold close to your heart from this correspondence? I would say that from Brother David, everything I've learned about gratefulness is so important. And to have someone who is a spiritual mentor, who also is so true to the gratefulness of his own life. He admits to struggling with depression. He struggles with aging. He struggles with things. And he's very, he struggles with the world the way that it is. He struggles with injustice. He struggles with racial and religious oppression. The most important gift that he's given me is to embrace and tell the truth. That nothing we do can set us free more than that and can, we can set each other free. That the, tr- the truth shall set you free. Um, there is something really extraordinary about that. And it does not diminish the gratefulness that he embodies. And it actually enhances them because that authenticity, the genuineness, the fact that he chews on things, the fact that he admits to things that are hard only makes him more worthy of my regard. And if that can be true for how I feel about him, then I can imagine it might be true for how people might feel about me as well. So it helps give each of us permission to be more of who we really are. Hmm. And is would you say that the truth is what is? Yeah. Okay. You know, all of these things are about finding that place where the future meets the moment, meets the past, these places of the middle ground, the places of embracing the gratefulness, all of the emotions. And it's making room for what's true to be true for us and not pushing it away and not hiding from it anymore and not being afraid to admit it. Living in fear, it doesn't serve us because it actually makes the things we resist and are fearful of stronger and more of an influence in our lives than embracing them. Mm. What you resist persists. Yeah, you got it. There's, There's a great saying. I love this because gratefulness is not something you're born with, nor does it have to be omnipresent, but you can be a student and you can always improve and and anchor back to that. So let's say someone listening is very pessimistic or very down and really struggles to feel grateful. Where should they start? Make a daily practice. I think it's really important to begin to notice all of the things that we're unconsciously grateful for to lift those up in our consciousness. Because if you just imagine, what if I didn't have this? What if I didn't have my feet right now? Uh, There are people who don't have feet and I couldn't walk for a while and it was really hard. And it's like, what if you could be grateful for having feet? What if every time your foot hits the ground, you could say thank you? for having a body that moves. There's so much to be grateful for, but when you notice them and when you appreciate them, nothing escapes your attention. Therefore, nothing escapes your um, appreciation, your acknowledgement. So that becomes rich. 
it's like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here right now having this conversation with you. It's, it's enough to make you really, it changes things internally. And the more you can build that musculature, like I say, it's a muscle. It's re, it takes repeating it and coming back to it and learning to notice more and more. I put little stickers on things. I literally put a sticker on something. Remind yourself when you get in the car. Remind yourself when you turn on the light. Remind yourself when you use the hot water. This is a gift. This is a privilege. This too is worthy of my thanks. How much is operating in favor of your life right now? How many people's energy, labor, time is in service of your life? Keeping electricity going, keeping food moving through the world so it can be on your table. Like just at some point, just there's so much to take stock of and we can lift that up in our awareness or we can suppress it. And when we lift it up, being able to make that one shift, it can begin to change everything. It's a transformative practice, as you say. It's a transformative practice. I really believe it is. I would love to identify some espresso shots of gratefulness that we can take throughout the day when we need that little boost. So let's start with the morning, waking up grateful. And one trendy practice nowadays is a gratitude list. So let's keep that habit for my listeners and myself included. And how can we transform this from a gratitude list to a more effective and empowering grateful list? Mm. Link your gratitude to the things that are more unconditional. Because one of the things that I realized was that the more unconditional we can make this experience of gratefulness, the more deeply seated it is, and the more it can weather all of the comings and goings of things, the more hours it is, the more you don't need things to be going right. So that I can be lying in a hospital bed for 10 weeks and still have that experience. Notice I'm lying in a bed. Notice my, my lungs are working. Notice all the systems in my body that are working right now. Holy camoli. Even if something's hurting, even if something's broken, even if something's ill, look at how much in my body is still working. Focus on what is working, what is present. Okay, if, if you want to keep going so we can keep going throughout the day, which is notice what your life would be like if something that you have, you didn't have. For instance, if I misplace my phone, I just can't even believe how much it changes my experience of my life because con being connected to people is so important to me. So there's something I think about imagining what would my life be like without this thing that I really cherish that I take for granted. Another one that you know from the book that's really important is I get to versus I have to. Do tell. So this is about, this is really a way to reframe. All these things are reframings. You can see, and it's about shifting our perspective into, oh, this is really a privilege. Not everybody has this. I really have enough. There's enough. So one of the ways that we do that is by taking the things that we feel like we have to do in our lives and switching the language to, I get to do it. So all of the things that feel like errands, all of the things that feel like chores, all of the things that we might resent, which are like the disciplines in our life that we have to do, these routines and rituals. And I can hardly imagine your life and what you, <laughs> what you have to do in your field. But just all of the things where it's like, I get to. I get to do this. This is incredible that I get to get into a car and go grocery shopping right now. How can I see the get-to-ness of that, the privilege of that? It's like, I have enough money to be able to buy food. I have a store I can get to. I have a car that'll get me there. I have food I can buy. So change it to a get-to-do list instead of a have-to-do list, kind of. You know, it's like really literally think of all the things on your to-do list. I get to write this email. I get to go on a podcast. I get to work every day. I get to do amazing work every day. So those kinds of things. Amazing. Get to your get-tos as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So exactly. I would love to dive into some common themes that might become obstacles to gratefulness throughout the day. So starting with comparison, which is the thief of joy. I've said this 50 million times. Everyone gets sick of me saying it. 
But my mind oh, ends. Oh, you do? You say that all the time? I say it all the time because uh, I love the quote and it's so true. But my mind instantly goes to social media, which is a hub for comparison, insecurity, and jealousy. So let's say we are on our phone and scrolling Instagram, come across a photo that makes us feel lack in our life and like we are not enough. What can we do or say to ourselves to shift this into gratefulness? So one of the things that I think is important is we're all prone to envy, right? So, and I, I like to think about envy a lot because I find the things and people I envy, I consider to be my inspiration. And so instead of being jealous, which is, I don't want you to have the thing you have, envious is, I want to have that thing that you have. I am so inspired by people who are creative. I'm envious as all get out for people who are like, you know, crocheting amazing things. And I crocheted my laundry bag, you know, it's like, I, no, I'm serious. I think they're people who can paint. I'm envious of people who have time to do a lot of those things, who take the time to do them and make them a priority. So I've decided to really be inspired by that and to change my life so that I can do the things I want to do. Therefore, I don't have to be envious of them. Hmm. Isn't it just a wild instruction about what we're really craving and longing for that we're not making real in our lives? Somebody else is. So I have envy for that. And it's like, all right, what's the answer? Resentment, separation, you know, all the icky things that you feel between yourself and other people versus how can I turn this into inspiration for myself? And then, and then the other thing would be to think honestly, because I think comparison is the thief of joy. It is also the delivery vehicle for joy. It depends what you compare to. So what would it be like not to have this? That's where gratefulness really, really helps is to turn towards what is in favor of your life and savor it, treasure it, inventory it, notice it appreciate it, hug it. You know, it's like, um, there's a great saying, let's see if I can remember it. I think you would appreciate it. It's, um, I would rather appreciate what I cannot have than have things I cannot appreciate. Oh, wow. I would rather appreciate what I cannot have. That's kind of taking the envy turnaround than have things I cannot appreciate. So the instruction is turn towards what you can appreciate in your own life. Do the work. Here's another great quote. I, I love that you like quotes. This is, this is one of my favorite quotes. The things in your life you take for granted, someone else is praying for. Everything in your life that you take for granted, someone else is longing for. Mm. Literally. When you start to work that in your life, it helps shift us away from this comparison is the thief of joy. Loving what you do have is the delivery of joy. Being grateful for what you have is an incessant and reliable way to deliver joy into your own life. Mic drop. <laughs> this is so good. And so related to comparison is body image. And you spoke about this earlier and how it was something that was really an issue in your life too. And I think every single human experiences this. So what is a technique that we can use? So let's say someone's looking in the mirror and they really don't like what they see, or they come across a photo that they think is so unflattering and really just want to change something about themselves. What can they do to counter this thought? I think everything we've talked about so far is kind of there, which is what's in service of your life right now. Um, I get to have this body. I could have a body that didn't work at all. I could have a body that couldn't move. I could have a body that, and it's like, it's about allowing ourselves to actually cultivate a treasuring relationship. How do you treasure the fact that you, the body that you have is a miracle. It's, it's an absolute unequivocal miracle, no matter what, you know, sometimes I feel like my body is 
how it appears is it's such a betrayal of how I wish it would be. It's like, come on now, you know, can we just get, can we just get a little bit, you know, like this and that. And yet my body is still here and it is functioning on behalf of life. It is giving me life in every single moment. Your body, you can look at it and say, oh, I wish this and that were true. Your body's giving you life. What are you going to do about it? What are you doing about that life that you're being given right now? Because staring in a mirror and objectifying yourself and finding fault with little things is probably not the greatest use of this life you've been given right now. And yet, so just hug yourself and turn away. Hug yourself and go do something incredible with your body. Again, it's no great, there's no great formula and there's no great secret. It's just turn towards the awareness of what is in service of your life right now and savor it. I wish I, I wish I had something more, more like, do No, the- I also love, I love hug yourself and turn away just as like an, an action to do that can become yeah. ingrained as a habit, but also... I love you. You keep saying, and yet. Oh, good. It's acknowledging what is. It's not saying however or but. It's saying this is true, and yet this is also true. Yes. And I think it almost marries both sides of the paradox in a way. It's this beautiful union or link between what could be perceived as negative and the shift to the grateful way of being. I will tell you, thank you. That is so beautifully observant. I never knew I said that ever, but I love that. And I love that. And yet I love that. (laughs) So one of the things that I love to do also is that's, I think, a very practical thing is I do this all the time. So for everyone that can't see you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I take, so I take my left hand, my right hand, and I put it over my heart, right? So it's under my clavicle on the left side now. And it's there. And then I put my right hand over it. And so both of my hands are just under my clavicle. And sometimes I'll even, when I lead meditations, I'll have people hook their thumbs together and their hands can be free and their fingers are free. So your thumbs are right at the the base of your neck and your hands are right up under your clavicle. And then just breathe. And you'll notice when you quiet your body down, that you can actually feel your heart beating when your hands are here. And if you can't, press a little more firmly, engage a little more intimately with your own body and feel your heartbeat. And feel your lungs breathing themselves, breathing you. Your lungs breathe you. And just holding yourself and holding this awareness. Remember how many people right now would give anything to have this moment, to have this breath, to have the unassisted ability to breathe, to have this day to be alive, to have your perfectly imperfect body. Let yourself imagine how many people who are not here today, how many people who are struggling today would truly give anything for the gift of your body. And now let compassion and self-love radiate from your hands into your chest. Let yourself feel it. The privilege of you. And with tenderness and slowly can open your eyes if they were closed and just stay connected with yourself. This is an option in every moment of your life. 
takes only a minute to reconnect with your true essence and with appreciating what you have and letting go of what you don't. Thank you for that, Christy. Wow, that's beautiful. And and you can just replay that, everyone listening, whenever you need. It's our embodiment and this moment that we have, and what are we going to do with it? And I'd say be as grateful as you can and dance. And dance, yes. So let's do our cool down quickly. Yeah, go for it. Brother David wrote that grateful living is a dance with life. What is your favorite dance style? Because I know that you like to dance on solid ground before we go onto the ice. One of my favorite songs is Happy by Pharrell. And I don't know what my dance style is, but it's really freeform and it's joyful. And I can't I can't get impact because I have rods in my spine. So I have a center of gravity and I love to really move down and low. Okay. Yeah. I love that. What, you've told me many quotes. Do you have any other ones on the top of your head or one more that you can leave us with? Yes. Sherry Huber is um, an American Zen teacher and she has a, a bunch of great quotes. One is, when you're falling, dive. And another one is, how you do anything is how you do everything. So that's a good mantra because it challenges us to wrap our heads around that. How you do anything is how you do everything. That's about integrity for me and about how do you want to show up into life. So how you do anything is how you do everything. I love that. And final question. Thank you. What is your number one book recommendation? I've had to think long and hard about it. And there's so many books that I love and so many authors I love, clearly. I mean, it's just one of my favorite things. And yet the book that changed my life, one of the books that changed my life is a little teeny book and it's very, quite old and it's called, and you might get a kick out of this, Love is Letting Go of Fear. And it's by Gerald Jampolsky. And I have not thought about it in forever, but I read it when I was a a late teenager. But I read this book and I realized that love was my purpose. And and that was, I was probably maybe 18 or 19 at the time. Oh my gosh. Well, this- so, it's a, it's a worthwhile book to pick up. I'm definitely picking it up. And actually this recommendation will go to good use because on my show, I have a tradition where my guest gets the book that was recommended by my previous guest. So you have a recommendation, which I will send to you as part of my gift basket. Uh, it's called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolt. And um, it's from my previous guest, Vanessa Cornell, who has a company called New Shoe Group, which is basically the women's circle reimagined. And it encourages sharing your vulnerability and connecting to the truth. So it's very on brand here. So that I will send to you. And Christy, this was just the most enlightening conversation. You are truly inspiring. And I can only imagine what my listeners are feeling light up within them right now from this conversation. And I just want to say that I'm very grateful for you. Mm, and I am so blown away to meet my soul sister, Lila. I, I am really honored by this time and by your presence and the depth of you. It's a gift. Thank you for sharing it with all of us. I'm Lila and you've been listening to The Lila Joe Show. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, head over to Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next time for another episode. Thanks for listening.